Welcome to the Deeper Dive Podcast, brought to you by the OC Church of Christ. The Deeper Dive Podcast is about going deeper into God's Word, learning new insight, and taking a fresh look at the verses that impact our daily lives. Today, we will resume our series, Revelation Revealed, with Gordon Ferguson. Get your scuba gear, and let's dive deep into God's Word. Here is Gordon. Welcome to podcast number four. This is Gordon Ferguson giving you an overview, a survey of the book of Revelation. We spent two entire lessons out of the four going over symbolic language, what we call apocalyptic language. Apocalypse means to reveal, but God chose to reveal himself all through the Bible uh, in the use of symbols. And so he's trying to appeal to the heart and the emotions more than simply to the intellect. And so we have all of these symbols that the Jewish people in the first century that received the book of Revelation, the Christian Jews, uh, they had uh, been familiar with this, especially through the intertestamental period. And so they could help their Gentile brothers understand it as well. And so it is uh, unusual to us, unless we've studied the Old Testament a lot, and then it's quite familiar to us as well, but the book of Revelation is an exciting book. It is written to people in persecution. It was a time when the emperor began to demand worship uh, in his lifetime. People had to say that Domitian was Lord. He was the emperor that especially enforced this to the point that the persecution began in an intense way with those who would not confess Caesar as Lord. And so we went through chapters one through six, the three churches, I mean, the three chapters about the churches of Asia, the seven churches in chapters two and three, an introduction to Christ in chapter one. And then we get into the seals, we get into the symbolic things that start, and it shows why the persecution began. It was due to the preaching of the gospel. And so we have these seals that were introduced in the image of Christ in chapter five, and the seals become a lesson within themselves. And so we went through six seals. We went through the persecution beginning, and the sixth seal is basically showing those uh, under the altar whose cause is going to be vindicated by God's coming judgment, and that judgment was announced in the sixth seal. Now, we come to chapter 7, and it is an interlude between the 6th and 7th seals, showing God's spiritual protection of his disciples on earth, and then as a great multitude in heaven. Now, they are numbered to be 144,000. Well, we said numbers were important in the book of Revelation, and so what we have is the number for organized religion, 12. We had 12 tribes in the Old Testament. We have 12 apostles in the New Testament. That's 144. You multiply that out by the number that just meant a long period of time in this case, uh, uh, in, in chapter 20 at least, but it also is used just to designate a large number. It doesn't mean a, a specific number, but in this case, it is 
multiplied by 144, and that gives you the 144,000. And so this represents all of God's disciples on earth. And they're wanting to know, okay, and all this uh, great judgment that is coming and has been announced in the last chapter, what is going to happen to us? And God is just showing that on earth they will be protected. And he numbers them 144,000, a symbolic number to show that all of the redeemed on earth going through persecution will be protected. Then the last part of the chapter shows the same group really as a great multitude in heaven and they no longer need to be counted. On earth, they need to be counted and taken care of. In heaven, there's no need to number them because they're just a part of this grand multitude of all of those who are now with the Lord. Now, the 144,000 that are sealed, and that's a common way to show that they are protected. God's seal is on them. Therefore, he knows who they are and will protect them. The number, 144,000 we have mentioned, but the interesting thing is, he describes them as the 12 tribes of Israel and yet, the way they're described, we know that they are not old Israel. They are the new Israel. And so in Galatians 6, 16, the church is called the Israel of God because we are now the chosen Israel, the true Israel, the spiritual Israel. And so it represents here the uh, spiritual Israel, Jew and Gentile alike. And you can tell that it means something besides simply the 12 Old Testament tribes because it is spiritualized. It's described differently. For example, it begins with Judah. Uh, in the order of birth, Judah was fourth, but Judah is mentioned here first because uh, that's the tribe out of which Jesus came. And then you find Levi in the list. And of course, that's the tribe out of which the priests came in the Old Testament, but they're in the list because all Christians are priests, and so they are mentioned. But Levi was not given a land inheritance in the Old Testament, inheritance, so they were given cities, but they were not among the ones given an inheritance of a land territory. But the Levites are mentioned here because all Christians are priests. Dan and Ephraim that were given land areas in the Old Testament, they're excluded from the list because they were centers of calf, calf worship in the Old Testament. Joseph's name is included here. His sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, were the ones who got the land masses. Joseph got a double portion in the Old Testament in that sense through his sons, but his name is mentioned here because Joseph is only seen as something very positive to all of us. He's one of our heroes, and so he's in the list. But at any rate, chapter 7 is an interlude to show that God protects his people even during this intense persecution that will be intensifying as it has described. Now, in chapters eight and nine, we get to the opening of the seventh seal, and that leads to another sequence of seven, seven trumpets. And so it's sort of like a dream. You're having a dream and one thing turns into another and it doesn't make sense from a totally 
intellectual point of view, of course, in a dream. And here it makes sense because God interprets it for us. But the seventh seal is open, and that's not the end. That leads to seven trumpets. And we'll later get seven bowls of wrath. So seven is that number that is the combination of the divine number three and the cosmic or world number four. And so seven becomes the number of perfection. And so as the sixth seal or the seventh seal rather is open, then we get into the sequence of seven trumpets. Uh, these are actually judgments that are going to come. But before we get to them, this section begins with silence. It's sort of like the calm before the storm hits. Uh, incense is involved, burning incense, which includes the prayers of the saints for God to move uh, uh, to action. And our prayers do move God. As I said last week, I think uh, thousands of prayers have moved God uh, to show no cancer in the recent scans that I took, even though I had definitely been diagnosed with cancer. But anyway, God is moved by prayers. Now, trumpets are used as warnings in the Old Testament. Here, here uh, they are calls to repentance. And we'll notice that only a third of everything that's affected will be affected. When we get to the bowls of wrath, everything gets connected. And so the judgments of God are warnings here. Later on, God says, okay, this is when it's done and the enemy is going to be defeated. His cause is going to be obliterated. The first four trumpets bring woes upon nature. And of course, that represents political powers. The fifth trumpet affects Satan's realm through a locust plague, likely suggesting internal decay of Rome because God's bringing Rome down as a nation because they're the persecutors of his people. And so probably the way the plagues of locusts or the plague of locusts is described, it is internal decay. And that was certainly one of the causes of Rome's ultimate fall. The sixth trumpet represents external invasion of Rome from outside enemies. And we know historically that took place with nations especially the Parthians that were always a thorn in the side of Rome, and eventually they have enough power to really do damage. In the book by uh, Gibbon, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, it shows three main reasons for the downfall of Rome. Natural calamity, flood, earthquake, volcanic eruption, all of that affected them economically severely. And of course, in our own country, we're having more and more natural calamities, and it is certainly uh, affecting our economy. In fact, every time one of these hits, it talks about the billions and billions and billions of dollars damage done. And of course, all that is going to have an effect on us economically. Uh, then with Rome, you also had internal rot rottenness. They just became so corrupt, their leaders, their political leaders, their uh, emperors. And so you had the internal rottenness represented here. Gibbons talks about that in his book. An external invasion 
like we said, from the Parthians and others, new and old enemies invaded. And so all of this is just announcing by way of warning, calling to repentance. This is all announced as God's judgments against Rome are taking place and going to intensify. Now, before we get to the seventh trumpet, because when the seventh trumpet sounds, we naturally assume that's the end. In 1 Corinthians 50, uh, 15, 52, it talks about the last trumpet sounding, the dead in Christ arise, and uh, uh, we're raised incorruptible to be with the Lord forever, etc. And so 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the final trumpet. And so when seven, the number of perfection, uh, is reached, you would think that would be the end. But we've got two uh, chapters that show us that it's not going to be the end at that time. The first one is in chapter 10. John the Apostle, who is giving us this revelation, is given a little scroll to eat. It is very sweet in his mouth and very bitter in his stomach. It's just like Ezekiel in chapter 2 of Ezekiel. And it shows that God's word, his judgments, are always sweet because they are his words. So the very fact that we have the message of God, even if it's a judgment, it's still sweet because God has chosen to give us his word and it is precious to us, even though some parts are very convicting and very challenging. But in the stomach, when it all settles in, the prophet that gives it, it makes him sick because the judgments are so severe. And so now that signifies that John is going to have more to say. It's a little interlude showing that. And the contents of a little scroll is born, going to be given before the book of Revelation ends. And so it's just letting John know that when the seventh trumpet sounds, it will signify something. It's a part of the sequence. And yet we're not at the end. We're still going to look at what's going on from a different perspective. It's going to give us a deeper look. Up until now, we're seeing everything from a physical vantage point as God's judgments come. And yet, in the last part of the book, beginning in chapter 12, we're going to go behind the scenes and see the spiritual cosmic battle that is taking place between God and Satan that is causing what is happening on the earth to happen. Satan is behind it uh, in the persecution, and God is bringing judgments, and so we're just going to be able to see the background of that. It's kind of like seeing a movie that starts with a contemporary view and then it goes back a generation or a long time even before that and shows you what led up to it. And so you see someone when they're old in the first part of the movie, but then it switches back to when they're a kid and then it shows how all of the background developed to get you up to the part of the movie that it began with. And that's what's going to happen in the book of Revelation. In chapter 11, uh, before the seventh trumpet sounds, you're going to see another sealing of God's persecuted servants. They're sealed spiritually, but not physically. 
And so they needed to keep being reminded that is, as the uh, judgments of God intensify because the persecution is going to intensify, God is going to still protect them spiritually. And that's still what happens today, right? God protects us spiritually, no matter what goes on physically, we may go through a lot physically. And as I speak, there are people in the world that are being persecuted physically because of their faith. Their faith is illegal, Christianity is illegal, and so even in our day, the same sort of thing is going on. But it was an empire-wide thing that was kicking in that the book of Revelation describes. Now, we begin in chapter 11 with the temple being measured, but not the court outside the temple. And that simply shows that spiritually, God's people are protected, but not outwardly. And that's true then, that is true now, certainly in certain places from a persecution standpoint. You have two witnesses who are preaching the gospel. They are killed, but later resurrected, and basically that's showing that their cause is going to seem like it is defeated. It's in the dust, the enemies are celebrating, and it seems like the persecutors have been successful. But later, they stand up, they have their cause raised up, and we'll get into that in much more detail in chapter 20, but the persecution is not going to win, and they may seem like they're defeated at some times because they have to go underground, they worship in catacombs, they hide. It seems like the cause has been obliterated, but all the while individual Christians are out sharing their faith carefully, but they're sharing their faith and they're converting people. And as someone said long ago, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so the church grew in the middle of all that, but they were not nearly as visible because they had to go into hiding, but the cause ultimately is going to triumph over that persecution that took place under the Roman Empire. And so finally, at the end of chapter 11, the seventh trumpet sounds, but the end is not yet because we are now going to move back into the spiritual realm of how all of this got started in the first place. So we're going from the current setting of what's going on to the background of how all of this got started in a cosmic battle, a galactic battle, spiritually, between God and Satan. Now, it begins in chapter 12 with a woman that we'll recognize to be Israel. There is a dragon and there is a male child. And so the Old Testament woman of Israel gives birth to a male child, that would be Jesus, and now Satan, through Herod, tried to kill him. And we know that from the gospel accounts. Now, as we go on, the woman becomes the church because old Israel was God's people in the Old Testament, but 
the Jews accepted Christ, the ones that did, 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, by the way, in Acts 2, but as they accepted Christ, then the new Israel is being formed, which is the spiritual Israel of the church. And so now the, per, the Old Testament woman is going to give birth to the Christ who introduces the new Israel. And now the new Israel, the church, becomes this woman. And we know her also as the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5. Uh, we are part of that woman as the church. But anyway, the woman is the one that Satan tries to destroy. And so he goes after the church. He is unable to prevail and destroy the church as a whole. And so he goes after individual Christians. And that's depicted symbolically in chapter 12. We go back to a war that took place in heaven between Michael and the archangel and uh, his angels against Satan and his angels. And you see that Satan is thrown down. He knows he has a short time. And so now he goes after individual Christians in every way that he can. He wants the whole church, but if he can't get the whole church, which he couldn't, obviously, then he went after individual Christians. Now, in chapter 13, we get introduced to Satan's chief allies on the earth, the sea beast and the earth beast, or the land beast. The sea beast is called that because he arises out of the sea of humanity. And so we have a beast mentioned here that will actually stand for Domitian, the first emperor to demand worship as a god on an empire-wide basis while he was still alive. And he was the first to institute persecution of Christians on a wide basis. We had Nero burning Christians, literally, on a stake, uh, covering them with pitch and burning them uh, on, on stakes in his garden in Rome we had Nero doing that in a narrow uh, containment, but now Domitian is going to make it empire-wide. The land beast was the false religion to support emperor worship. So the land beast was the supporter of the sea beast. Now later we'll see that the uh, land beast, the, the false prophet here, later called, is going to basically force people to worship the emperor, to worship the sea beast. And this is where the mark of the beast is mentioned. And that meant that you had to accept emperor worship and you were marked with his mark, meaning that you had to recognize him as a god in order to buy and sell and do business. And it became so intense that if you didn't pinch incense and say Caesar is Lord and get a certificate for so doing, you would be killed. That developed after the first century, but they did develop that into quite a system. Uh, and you had to go and do it just like people have to go and get a driver's license today to drive you had to go and pinch incense and say Caesar is Lord. And the Christians that didn't do that at first 
uh, could not buy or sell, and that continued, but many of them were killed as a result. And this is where, at the end of the chapter, you find the beast identified with the number 666. It is the mark or the number of a man, John tells us. And so many theories have come out about 666 and how to identify it, etc. There is no end to this. Uh, you can look it up and Google it, and there have been all kinds of historical figures identified as 666, up to and including our day with political uh, people. Your imagination can uh, come to a conclusion pretty quickly about some of the individuals that might be identified as 666, but basically it's a symbolic number. We've already said that. Seven was the number of perfection, so six was falling short of that. It was like the number 13 to us, and people are uh, very superstitious about that. I just saw the other night an old uh, rerun of a TV show, and this woman uh, in the show who had cancer uh, had sat down to enjoy a dinner party, and a person came and sat down, and at that point she got up and left because she said, that's 13. I can't stay here. That's 13. That's bad news. And I've got cancer. I mean, that was sort of the idea. But anyway... Uh, six was that for them. We don't have a 13th floor on a lot of uh, hotels, for example. Uh, they wouldn't have had a sixth floor. And so when you say 666, uh, that was a sinister number falling short of the perfect seven. And that was just saying that the beast was going to fail. Failure upon failure upon failure is the way that I think it should be interpreted. And so later in a collection of writings from the early centuries, the uh, Sibylline Oracles, they describe Christ with the number 888. And so just like the beast was 666, failure upon failure upon failure, they were saying that Jesus was 888. He was far beyond perfect. And so I think that even helps us understand that this is not some modern day figure, some future figure to us. It was exactly who they were dealing with back then. And that was a persecuting emperor. And in this case, Domitian in particular as the one who got it all going. And it was going during his reign when Revelation was published and put out. In chapter 14, we're introduced again to the number 144,000. And so we've got the redeemed, all of the redeemed on earth who are going through this terrible time. They are mentioned again, and they are described in a very beautiful spiritual way. I preached a lesson on this one time. If you go through and look at their description this time, it uh, shows their spiritual qualities and it actually is quite beautiful. So they're being reminded not only that they are sealed and protected, they are reminded of the life that they still are called to live even in the midst of persecution. Study that one out. 
And I've said, you're going to have to study this on your own if you want to deal with all of the details. We certainly don't have time to do it here, although that would be fun. And there are other materials where I have done that, probably uh, recordings, audio uh, versions of this, but certainly my book uh, by the title that we're using for the podcast, Revelation Revealed. You'll have to do some study on your own. Now, in chapter 14, the 144,000 are described early on, but then it talks about the impending doom of Babylon the Great. By this time, Babylon was a term used to depict Rome because like Babylon of old, who persecuted God's people, Rome is now doing that. Even when Peter wrote his books, in 1 Peter 5.13, as he gives a final greeting uh, to 1 Peter, he says these greetings are coming from Babylon. Well, Peter wasn't in old Babylon. Peter was in Rome. And so now Babylon is the identification symbolically of the persecuting empire of Rome. And so that's uh, how it is used in this chapter as well as 1 Peter chapter 5. So you can read that one. It's a very interesting chapter, a very good chapter, practical. When you look at the 144,000 and what the new Israel is supposed to look like even during a time of persecution. Chapter 15, it begins by saying, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign seven angels with the seven last plagues. Now they are called the last ones because with them God's wrath will be completed. We are approaching the end of God's causing Rome to be obliterated in her persecution and as a nation in time. Chapter 16, we have the bowls of wrath being poured out and these bowls, the contents of them, the judgments against Rome, uh, against uh, by way of natural calamity and the heavenly bodies affected, etc. It's a more final version, although similar in wording to the six trumpets that were calls to repentance. Now repentance is over and God's judgment is come and he is going to do Rome in. In chapter 17, he describes the third ally of Satan. We got back in chapter 13, the two beasts, uh, political Rome and religious Rome that supported political Rome. And now the third ally is found here. And this is the materialistic, worldly aspect of Rome called the great prostitute. And so this was an aspect of Rome, uh, uh, an aspect of Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitute, prostitutes. And so the way it is all described is we're talking about materialism. And so she rides, this prostitute rides upon the beast, the emperors, uh, and a series, a series of emperors as kings are mentioned here. He actually goes through a sequence of eight, eight being Domitian. But it's very interesting. I don't have time to go into this at all. But there is a sequence of emperors given 
that suggests that John's visions uh, may have been given to him during the reign of Vespasian, an earlier emperor toward the end of the series, because uh, John was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. So that is probably where he was when he received this revelation and wrote it down. But then as he came out of that uh, banishment, then he published the book uh, for the church. And so that came out after his exile from Patmos. But a very interesting sequence of a literal eight kings or eight emperors are given here. And then the number 10 is used for all those that would follow. In chapter 18, there's a long lament over the fall of Babylon, all the materialism, and you can imagine what will happen when our nation one day falls uh, because of our sin reaching its fulfillment. And I'm not saying that Revelation portrays that. I'm just saying it is the way of nations and there are a lot of things going on that are very similar between studies that have been done of other nations that fell and what is going on among us now. So anyway, I'm not a conspiracy theorist by any uh, stretch of the imagination, but I have studied things. There is a study that I think I have mentioned before, but uh, there's a study that talks about the sexual uh, morals of a nation and uh, there was a guy named Unwin who was not even a religious guy, but he studied the sexual uh, makeup of a nation or practices of a nation and how they went from very strict morality to very loose immorality of every type. And he shows at a certain point they fall. It's a long study and there are surveys of it that you can look up, but it's scary business when you apply it to our nation. But I won't get into that. You can do that later. I'm just saying that nations that rebel against God long enough and seriously enough are going to fall. And of course, the things that can happen to ours in that process, the thing that we would lament most would be the fall of our way of life, right? Our materialism. And so that's a temptation to us like it was for them and reading chapter 18 would probably be a good chapter to read to help us understand God's hatred of materialism because it is idolatry in placing things of the world over him. Chapter 19 is heaven's hallelujah chorus over the fall of Babylon. The reason for the fall is Jesus. He's pictured here as the rider on the white horse with a sharp sword coming out of his mouth, who is designated as faithful and true and named Lord of Lord and King of Kings. So the chapter begins with a great prostitute going up in smoke and ends with a beast and false prophet. The other two aspects of the persecuting Roman Empire they are thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And in chapter 20, Satan's allies uh, are defeated and no more. And he himself will join them in hell in chapter 20. So in chapter 20, we're going to find that Satan is bound for a thousand years, loosed for a short time, 
and then judged, followed by the great white throne judgment of everyone at the end of time, and then heaven is ushered in, in its description in chapters 21 and 22. But in chapter 20, and I'll just read a bit of that to get us started here. He says, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, the Satan, uh, or, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus. That's back in chapter 6 when the ones who had been martyred were under the throne crying out for God to vindicate their cause. They were with God. It wasn't them literally. It was their cause. They were shown as having been sacrificed, martyred, and they are calling for God's vindication of their cause. In chapter 20, now they're raised to be seated on thrones with Christ for a thousand years. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Their cause did, and he calls this the first resurrection. Now, he says Satan is bound for a thousand years. He's bound by being limited not to deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years are over. Now, we know Peter said that he's like a lion. He's going about trying to kill everyone spiritually. And so Satan's still doing his thing, but he is limited. He's chained so that there's something he cannot do, and that is deceive the nations as a whole, because he did that in the early centuries of the church. The entire world was persecuting Christians, the known world. And so he's bound from doing that. One time I was uh, doing a walk through a neighborhood or a jog, I think it was back when I was younger, and I saw a dog get up and start running toward me, and I was on a sidewalk, as I recall, and I thought, wow, this guy's going to get me. I think it was a Doberman. And just before he got to me, he hit the end of his chain. Now, he had a lot of leeway had I walked into his territory, but he couldn't come out into mine because he was chained, and Satan is limited in that way for a thousand years. Now, not a literal thousand years. It's a long period of time. In Exodus 20 and verse 6, it says God keeps his uh, covenant, keeps his promises for a thousand generations. Well, it doesn't mean he starts lying after the thousand, and so a thousand and first, you better beware. No. In Psalm 50 and verse 10, God owns the cattle of a thousand hills. Job 9, 3, he says that uh, uh, humans could not answer God, not one out of a thousand times. It's just like we say, we wouldn't do that in a million years. That's the way we would describe it. It's, it doesn't mean a literal uh, number. It just means a long time. 
And so Satan was uh, not going to be able to deceive the nations for this thousand year complete period of time. And then he would be loosed. In verses four to six, those under the throne are now raised to sit on the throne in victory, the victory of their cause when the persecution was ended. And that would last for a long period of time. We are in that thousand year period now because Satan has never been able to deceive the entire world at one time about persecuting Christians. But evidently that is going to happen because he will be loosed after that thousand year period for a short time. And so we would assume from that he will bring about another worldwide persecution just before he is thrown into the lake of fire at the end of time. Chapters 20 and 21, paradise is restored as all of the redeemed of all ages are now with God forever and ever. The Bible begins with man's sin and paradise lost. And now it will end with man's redemption from sin, his delivery from all of the trials, the tribulation, the persecution of this life and this fallen world and paradise will be restored and we will be with God. And so it's a beautiful book to show us that God's way is always going to win. We are on the right side, no matter what it looks like, just from a physical perspective. And at the end, we are with God forever and ever. So that is a brief overview of the book. And hopefully we have whetted your appetite to want to study it out more. I do caution you to not get caught up in anything that is going to just sensationalize uh, something in our day and get people's focus off of what really matters. When I first got into uh, spiritual things in a serious way, a man in our church invited me to his house. Maybe I've told you this before earlier, but he invited me over and he pulled out a chart that was as long as his kitchen table and he had a big kitchen table. He pulled out a chart about all the signs and everything and he pulled out pictures of the pyramid and measurements and all of this about what was about to happen and keep in mind, this is 60 years ago or thereabouts. And he's telling me that we're at the end times and all these horrible things are just about to happen. And there have been books without end written telling what was supposed to be happening uh, 50 and 60 years ago and 30 years ago and 20 years ago and on and on. People never give up on this. And so people want to know what is happening and what does this mean about the Middle East and what does this mean about Russia right now invading uh, uh, Ukraine and, and so on. And people are so prone to do that. I'm rather drawn to the comment one time that a guy made when he uh, was being asked about his belief. He said, uh, someone said to him, are you premillennial or amillennial? And he knew further questions would come because they were into speculation. He said, actually, he said, uh, 
I'm I'm neither of those. He said, I am pan-millennial. And someone said, pan-millennial? I don't believe I've ever heard of that. He says, I just think God's in control and it will all pan out good at the end. And I thought, well, that's a pretty good way to describe it. When you get caught up into trying to figure out all this symbolism, you'll get so sidetracked if you try to apply it to something that it doesn't apply to to start with. It is the first century and following Christians that are persecuted and God is assuring them through symbolic language that he is going to judge the Roman Empire and the emperor worship and the martyrdom and all of the things that are going on will end. And they did. And so toward the end of time, Satan will be loosed. He will fool the world as a whole into emperor worship, perhaps, into a one-man system, perhaps. And I say perhaps, it's just subjective uh, thinking here. That's what they had then. They had a one-man in control of the world situation, and they had a worldwide persecution of Christians. And so one uh, or two of those things could occur again, but then it'll be ended, we'll be judged, we'll be with God forever if we belong to him. And so ends the book. As I told my friend that day when I was a young guy uh, pursuing Christianity, when I was a young guy and he showed me all of his charts and graphs and all of the things that were supposedly about to take place in that period of time, I asked him finally, I said, listen, what does all this really mean to us right now today? And honestly, it stumped him because he was so caught up in it. Finally said, well, I guess since all this is going to happen, then we should get out and talk to people and help people become Christians and get ready uh, for whatever comes. And I said, you know, that's a great idea. Why don't we fold up all your stuff and let's go out and find some people to study the Bible with. So that was a great answer 60 years ago. It's a great answer today in 2022. And that's what I suggest we do together. Study Revelation, enjoy it. Uh, It is exciting, but never lose a sense of your purpose. Never let anything, including a book of the Bible called Revelation. Never let anything get you away from your purpose of having a relationship with God and helping everyone else to have that precious relationship. Thank you very much for staying with me here today and through the other podcasts. I've enjoyed doing it. I think we may well have a question and answer time later. But this hopefully has given you a good foundation to study Revelation more on your part. So enjoy doing that. Thank you very much for tuning in with me. And I love you and pray that God will bless you in every way and help you to be like those first century Christians that had enough conviction to be willing to die, to say Jesus is Lord, when failing to say Caesar is Lord would cost them their lives. Let's have that kind of conviction about the faith that we profess. God bless you. Thank you, Gordon, and thanks for listening to Deeper Dive by the OC Church of Christ. 
To conclude our Revelation Revealed series, we will have a Q&A with Gordon about the book of Revelation. If you would like to submit your question, please email us at occhurchofchrist at gmail.com or message us on social media. If you want to get connected to us or want to donate to the program, go to our website, occhurchofchrist.com or through social media at the OC Church. Join us next time for our next Deeper Dive.